You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Pretty good. That's good. My name is Dave. I'm pastor here at Harborside, and it's awesome to be here this morning. Hope you felt warmly welcomed. Hope you got a good warm cup of coffee. We had some newbies on the coffee machine this morning. I think they did pretty good. Can we give a round of applause? Come on. Yeah. You know you're planting a church in Sydney when coffee is of supreme importance. We are a snobby coffee bunch, me included. It's good to be here. Hey, we're going to open God's Word and we're going to see what he has for us today. It's a great passage, one I reckon a lot of us are pretty familiar with, but I think all of us are going to be quite challenged. I know I've been challenged. I say that most Sundays, but it's true. I've been challenged reading this, praying through this passage this morning, asking what does God have for us as a people. So I'm excited. But I reckon, as always, we need to pray. We need to submit to his will that his spirit worked amongst us this morning. So let's pray. Let's do that together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We just want to declare that, that we love you. And we know we can only say that because you first loved us. Lord, we want everything that we do to be a a response from that place. Lord, as as Sean mentioned before, I I bet you many of our weeks have got lots of highs and lots of lows, and our minds are probably very distracted with things that need to happen this afternoon and tomorrow morning and with the week ahead. Lord, would you please, by your spirit, just carve out some, some space, some margin in our minds that we could think on good things, that we could think about storing our treasures up in heaven, that we could continue to ask this question, Lord, who are you and who are you making us to be? Father, we just, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather like this, and we do ask that you'd speak in a mighty way. Amen. Uh, during our final year of living in the U.S., many of you know that we lived in the U.S. for a number of years, uh, we thought we made a decision to come back home to Australia. And uh, we probably had about six months to go, and we thought, look, let's take advantage of the pretty cheap prices in America, and let's sort of set up our home in Australia with sort of good quality, cheap American furniture. And so my wife, she's not here, so I can say this, she went a little crazy. Uh, she, she, no, she didn't really, but this, she, was, she loved this sort of mandate, okay, I'm going to go and fit out our Australian place. And so we went to all those antique markets, you know, she dragged me along to, I mean, she brought me along to, and... Um, we enjoyed that. So we bought like, you know, couches and sort of buffets and different stuff, really cheap. But we found this really beautiful dining table, this really beautiful dining table, not in one of these antique markets, but online. And uh, she showed me and that the seller had good reviews and all the photos looked great. It was a beautiful handmade wooden table, seated eight. And then it had these sort of extensions on either side that you could put in to, to seat 12. And it was really beautifully handcrafted. Get this, it was Amish handmade. And that sort of, oh, that got our imagination going. Like, okay, so we just sort of pictured this dude with a beard, the hat and overalls and in this sort of workshop that was 300 years old in a trade that had been handed down from generations past, lovingly working on this table for sort of weeks on end. That really caught our imagination. It was pretty reasonably priced. And so we, we bought it from Pennsylvania. We got it delivered down to Atlanta. It arrived. We're like, oh, this is awesome. So we set it up in our living room and... We like having people over, and so 
when we'd have people over, we'd go, oh, do you have a new table? Oh, yeah, you noticed. Yeah, it's a, it's a handcrafted Amish handmade uh, all the way from Pennsylvania. So we liked kind of showing off, telling people about it. Anyway, so we pack up the shipping container. We put plenty of blankets around this precious table and uh, we pack the shipping container and we head home. Anyway, a couple months later, the stuff is still on, on the shipping container. It takes a long time to get here. It was somewhere between China and Australia at this point. And this lovely American couple invited us over for dinner from, from our new church. So we sit down, very nice of, us, of them to have us. We sit down and we look at this table. You know where this is going, don't you? My wife and I look at each other and we look at the table. We're like, this looks really familiar. I mean, the table, obviously our table was on the high seas, so it couldn't have been our table. We look at it, we're like, so we ask our hosts, um, where'd you get the table from? And they're like, oh, it's nice, isn't it? We got it on sale at Pottery Barn, which is like their version of Freedom Furniture. And they shipped it over and they got it from Pottery Barn. <laughs> oh, okay. So we kind of keep, yeah, it's a nice table. We have one similar. And we just, you know, we get home and we're like, we've been duped. This beautiful table, it's still a nice table, but it was not a, not a unique piece of handcrafted woodwork. It was, and, I, and then I went underneath, and I mean, I should have looked before, but it even had like this tiny little bit of a barcode on the. <laughs> I don't think the Amish use barcodes. I don't know, maybe they do. But we were duped. Our beloved table ended up being not unique at all, but mass produced in a factory for Pottery Barn. Well, today we're going to witness with great clarity that Jesus is no counterfeit. He is the unique Messiah, the unique Son of God. Truly, there is no one like him. Today is the final message in our Discover Jesus series. We've spent pretty much since we've launched, we've spent this time discovering who Jesus is in Mark's gospel, which is a biography of Jesus' life. We've gone from chapters 1 through 8, asking the questions, who is Jesus, what did he come to do? And today we get an answer to who is Jesus, just with supreme clarity, which you heard in our reading. A very important question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? I would say, you may not agree with me, but I would say it is the greatest question of our time. Now, don't get me wrong, there's lots of great questions of our time, what are we going to do about climate change? Big question. What are we going to do about the refugee crisis facing the world? Big question. What are we going to do about the polarizing of the left and right? Who's going to be leading the free world? Is it going to be Trump? Big question. Where are we going to go to lunch after this most likely too long sermon? Big question. What's the greatest coffee in this area? Another big question. But the greatest question, I think, of our time, who is Jesus? Now, why? Why is it the greatest question? Because how we answer this question profoundly affects, yes, our eternity, but also our life now. And the author of this book that we've been looking at, Mark, is keen for every single one who reads it, who hears these words, and that's all of us now, to answer this question for themselves, not to have it as just some question of history, but a question for us to answer, who is Jesus? Now, let me catch the Christians in the room before you wander away, because you might be thinking, I answered that question for myself a long, long time ago. I mean, I did. This question of who is Jesus feels elementary. I answered a long time ago. But here's the thing. This morning, we're going to be challenged to see him as he truly is, not how we might want to see him. 
And this question, I think, I don't think it matters if you call yourself a Christian or not. It matters more than we might know because Jesus, as we're going to see, is the Messiah. And because he is that, he is able to deliver on some of the most beautiful promises you've ever heard. Promises that our souls, just as human beings, would long to be fulfilled. So today's message is can, titled, Can You See the Real Jesus? Can you see the real Jesus? So we're going to travel through this passage that was read so well for us by Bridget. Thank you. And we're going to see, um, we're going to unpack the disciples' conversation with Jesus. Then we're going to unpack Jesus' reply, his rebuke to Peter. And then we're going to kind of do it a bit out of sequence. Then we're going to unpack the healing with the blind man. So these kind of three things. We're going to be looking at these. I'll turn this thing on. There we go. We're going to look at the question, who am I? Pretty obvious. Then we're going to look at the yes, but let me explain. That's going to how we're going to travel through this passage. And then we're going to ask the question, can you see? So who am I? Yeah, but let me explain. And can you see? So let's get cracking here with the first question, who am I? Our passage today begins with Jesus and his disciples leaving the area of Caesarea Philippi. In this first section of Mark 1 to 8, Jesus just kind of hops between all these different, Capernaum, Nazareth, all, with not really seeming a plan. But after today, after this very important question is answered, he will resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem to the cross. But they're going through the villages of Caesarea Philippi and they have a pretty significant conversation, the disciples and Jesus. Jesus asks his disciples this question, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? This is a major question. And don't you think the disciples would have discussed this amongst themselves? When they would have been thinking out of earshot from Jesus all the time, who the heck is this guy? I mean, let's just think about what they've experienced for a moment, right? They've seen him teach in the synagogues, enormous gift of teaching. Not like the teachers of the law they grew up with who were boring and constantly cited people, but, but taught as one who had authority that applied the word of God to their hearts. They've seen him heal many from sickness and disease. You remember the, the healing of the paralytic, or as my little three-year-old son calls him, the paralytic. Um, <laughs> He heals the paralytic and then has the audacity to say, your sins are forgiven. I mean, who can do that? You can imagine the disciples muttering amongst themselves, who is this man? They've seen him heal the demon-possessed man in chapter 5, proving that he is Lord over the spiritual realm, binding the strong man, the evil one, proving he is the stronger man. They've seen him provide miraculously feeding thousands of people with a couple of people's lunch. They've seen him calm storms, walk on water, I'm sure it's all the disciples have been talking about. Who is this man? And now he asks them, or at least he asks two questions, doesn't he? He says, who do the people say that I am? And then who do you say I am? So he asks the easier question first because it's much easier to sort of put forward the opinions of others, isn't it? I mean, because you're not on the line. Oh, these people say this about you and these people say this and because you're not being defined by these opinions. So... Who do the people say that I am? And here's the answer. Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now, John the Baptist we met weeks ago in chapter 1. His ministry was a, a preparation ministry, preparing for the one greater than him. And then we saw a few weeks ago he lost his life to King Herod. He was martyred. So people thought, well, oh, John the Baptist is dead now. Could he have come back in some sort of supernatural way and... Could, could this 
Jesus be sort of him, or, or maybe he's Elijah, one of the favorite prophets from the Old Testament, who himself didn't die but was taken up into heaven. So people thought, well, maybe he's come back, or, or maybe he's just he's like one of the prophets from long ago. Now, all of these things, all of these answers might seem like an honor, like a compliment. I mean, these are good people, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, but what they are is poor attempts, or that's a bit mean, human attempts to try and categorize who Jesus is. It's, it's like the, the parable that Jesus uses, new wine into old wineskins. Jesus is the new wine that needs to go in a new wineskin because the new wine needs to go through a fermentation process and the, the old wineskins weren't appropriate for that. They used to burst. Jesus can't go into any of these old categories. They will burst. They try and categorize Jesus with their very human categories, and we do the same, don't we? When asked about Jesus, how many people are happy to kind of keep him at arm's length, right? He's, yeah, yeah, figure of history, influential, good moral teacher, a great example of self-sacrifice, a revolutionary that stuck it to the excuse me, oppressors. But all of these things deny the incredible uniqueness of the true Son of God. Okay, that's the first question. Then Jesus puts this to them. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, this is the first time Jesus has engaged them in this kind of discussion. <laughs> Certainly the first time we're aware of Jesus asking them this, this very direct question. And you see what he's doing here? He's asking his disciples to act in faith. Okay? Make a decision about who I am. Now, they've seen a lot. We've just talked about it. They've witnessed a lot, but they don't know everything. And they've seen the religious leaders deny him, which is, must have been a category shifter for them. They've seen Jesus' own family deny him. So Jesus is, this is not necessarily that easy for the disciples. Jesus extends the invitation to them, make a decision on who I am based on faith, and he extends the same in, invitation to us. Make a decision exercise faith, not blind faith. We have a good amount of evidence about who Jesus is and what he's done. But make a decision based on faith. Anyone who's had a child before will know that the decision to have a child and the many decisions that lead up to it, I'm thinking of Dinesh and Sam who are probably hours away from giving birth. I don't know where they are. They might be giving birth right now. Oh, there they are, over there. No, they're not. It's good, they're not. She's a doctor, it's fine if they do. But you don't know if, <laughs> you don't know what the future holds, do you? When you make the decision to have a child, you think, well, you just you you may you you see the evidence, you see people around you having children, you see friends, and you think, well, let's let's decide to have a child, and we'll see what will happen. You you don't know what the future holds. It's like taking a new job. A friend of mine just just left a great job, even for a better promotion, but he doesn't know exactly what the boss is like. He doesn't know what his work colleagues are like. He's taking a step of faith into that new space. The disciples here are invited to do the same as we are, right? They go from the status of passive recipients to active participate, to participants Excuse me, in Jesus' ministry like never before. He's invited them to have skin in the game. All right, let's move on. To our next point, Peter answers, most likely on the behalf of all of them, because they've all been discussing this, and he says, who do you say I am? You are the Messiah. So this brings us to our next point. 
Yes, but let me explain. Um, living in the States, there were lots and lots of times where lots of things were lost in translation. I'm glad there's a few people here who aren't, uh, who didn't grow up in Australia here. English isn't their first language because you'll get it. There's so many things Australians say that are just really hard to understand. Like we'd be in the studio and we'd say, I'm just going to go to the dunny. And they'd be like, what does that mean? What's a dunny? And, you know, thongs, that's a different meaning in, in America. You probably know that. And I had some awkward moments there with that one. Uh, we'd say something like, the Savo, let's go do some hard yakka, but I'm going to go grab my thongs and visit the dunny before we hit the frog and toad. We'd, we'd say something like that, and the Americans would just look at us like we're crazy. So many things lost in translation. And one of the weirdest things Australians do, get this, uh, you may not agree with me and you may not experience this, but I reckon we do this, right? Yeah, nah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Isn't it weird? Like, do you want to go to the movies? Yeah, nah. What is that? It makes no sense. I mean, we do it all the time. I can see that Brazilian folks going, yeah, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Jesus, this might be a really long boat. Jesus is kind of doing a yeah, nah. Right? Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, yeah, but I tell you what, you don't know what you mean by saying that. Your expectations, your your thoughts around who, who, what that is and what that means is just so different. Yeah, nah. See, the disciples are, Peter's absolutely correct, you're the Messiah. But Jesus says, you're right, but I've got to reorient your thinking. He spends the rest of Mark's gospel reorienting their thinking about what the Messiah is and what it really means. And this is what he says. This is his kind of manifesto for what the Messiah is going to do. Check it out. Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And three days later, three days, sorry, and after three days, rise again. What? We just, it's so familiar for us, a lot of us Christians, just try and think about this from their point of view. What, this is what our leader is on about? This is what's in store for our leader and us. It's totally not fitting with their expectations. So what were they expecting? They were expecting a king. That's what Christ Messiah means. It's the same word, just in different languages. Uh, Messiah, Hebrew, Christ, Greek. It means anointed one. And who was anointed? Kings. Kings of the Old Testament. They're thinking the Messiah is going to be kind of like King David. That's why it's in the line of King David. Why David? Because that was the high point of the history of Israel. They, they didn't get better in sense of power or influence, and there was no foreign oppressors. So take us back to those times. We're looking for a Messiah who's going to kick out these Romans, these oppressive foreign powers. Uh, we had a boys' movie night the other night. It's a bit last minute, so there's only a handful of us, and we're... I looked at Apple TV before the guys came, and we th I thought, oh, here's some movies we could watch. And we're having dinner beforehand, and we're chatting, and I think um, so someone said, suggested this sort of arty movie. It was probably Andrew Chivers, who's a very learned and sort of cultured person. Um, he said, why don't we watch this? Everyone went, yeah, that could be cool. Yeah, nah. Um, <laughs> and then someone else suggested this new documentary. And, oh, yeah, that could be cool. And then we just started talking about our favourite movies. And he, you can just guess the movies that came up, right? Someone mentioned Braveheart and everyone went, oh, at the same time, like, oh, great movie, love that movie. And 
Somebody mentioned Gladiator. Oh, so we watched Gladiator. We'd all seen it three or four times before, but we watched it anyway. And we thought, well, you know, just a great movie. Now, why? Why do we love these movies? Because we love these stories about someone taking on an unjust oppressor, you know, fighting for honour and justice. So we just thought that the best sort of boys' night would be watching, well, there's Braveheart, there's Gladiator, you know what? The best, the best would be watching Braveheart, Gladiator and Hercules because The Rock is Hercules. Who doesn't need a bit of The Rock in their life? We thought that would be the ultimate boys' night. You see, the Jews at this time were yearning for somebody like this. They wanted a Braveheart to rise up and stick it to the man. And you know what? A couple of hundred years before Jesus, someone like that appeared picture of him. His name was Judas Maccabeus. The area of Palestine, Israel, was being ruled by the descendants of Alexander the Great, and they weren't particularly nice to the Jews. In fact, they, they incited them by trying to sacrifice a pig in the holiest of holies in the temple, and it just led to a massive civil war, and this guy rose up called Judas Maccabeus. That was a great, skilled military leader, and against all odds, he kicked out these Greek armies. And he was just celebrated in Jewish culture. In fact, the celebration of Hanukkah celebrates this victory of kicking out the Greek oppressors. And it established something called the Hasmonean dynasty. There you go. There's your history lesson for this morning. But he was a hero, even though his kingdom didn't last that long. This is what they want to take us back to those times. But Jesus, just so different, right? He says, this is what the Messiah is going to do. Suffer experience rejection by the religious authorities of all people, die and rise again. Now, that doesn't sound like winning. I mean, that rising again sounds like winning, but there were so many things Jesus said before that I bet you they didn't even hear the rise again thing. This does not feel like winning. This feels like losing, and he's inviting them to lose as well. Feels like. Now, I don't know if you've been part of a losing team before, maybe in sport or anything. I have been part of many. You might look at me to think, he's quite the sporting specimen. I am not. The guy leading the service, Sean, he is a great sporting specimen. I was just, I don't know, I'm not a very good sportsman. Growing up, I was always in the Ds and Es and Fs. And we'd finish like the season, 13 wins, you know, sorry, 13 losses, three wins. And I'd come home from another loss and mum would go, it's character building. It doesn't feel character building <laughs> in the time. But who, it's just hard to be part of those teams, isn't it? Part of be part of a losing team. And as Charlie Brown, the um, famous philosopher and theologian, not really, as, as Charlie Brown says, winning ain't everything, but losing ain't anything. And Jesus seemed to be saying he was going to lose, and he was inviting them to come along. You see, Jesus will don the servant's towel rather than the warrior's sword. He'll practice sacrifice above vengeance. He will not inflict suffering, but suffer himself as a ransom for many. Now this, we'll just blank that. Thanks, Maxie. This might look like losing. Right? It feels and looks like losing. It's so counterintuitive to us. We want a brave heart. But Jesus was going to secure the ultimate win and win the most supreme victory the world has ever known by suffering, being rejected by dying and rising again, he would defeat our greatest enemies, not some foreign oppressor, but sin, death, and the evil one, once and for all. So rather than doing battle with one oppressive power in one location, in one moment in history, 
he would secure life and victory for all his followers, for all history and into eternity. That's a great victory. Don't blame him. Peter does not understand this. And he takes Jesus aside. But Peter says, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, yeah, you're right. Let me reinterpret what that might mean for you. Peter hears it. He's just not getting it. And he takes Jesus aside. He spoke, thanks, yeah, he spoke plainly about this, which is Jesus. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can I just give you a tip? If you are planning to rebuke the Son of God, just make sure you've got your stuff together. Make sure you know what you're talking about. Make sure you're sure of yourself. And even if you are, don't. (laughs) But you can see just how counterintuitive this was for Peter, right? Jesus, what are you talking about? Suffer, be rejected, die. How on earth are we going to be able to sit at your right hand in victory? Because isn't this what the disciples are often fighting about? Who's going to be the greatest? They're jostling. Let me, let me sit at his right hand. And this is so different. Foolish Peter. We could never be like him, could we? Peter doesn't hold back, tries to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus doesn't hold back either. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Quite a stinging comeback, isn't it? It's kind of what I say when someone offers me decaf coffee instead of the real stuff. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God in mind. Don't you know I have three young children? Get behind me, Satan. It is a sharp rebuke, isn't it? But it should give us a clue to how important this road of suffering, rejection, death and resurrection is for Jesus. Because for Peter, a great friend of Jesus, to be, to be said, you're doing the work of Satan here. Can't you see how important this is for Jesus' journey, for his life, for his purpose? This is what Satan tries to do in the wilderness with Jesus, right? He tries to tempt him away from his destiny. All right, this brings us to our final point, can you see, by far and away, our shortest point. What we're going to do now is we're going to jump back to the beginning of our reading, and we're going to journey through this little story about the blind man being healed. I think it's got something pretty special for us, so let's check it out. Let's read it together. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he'd spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Strange story, isn't it? The strange story of healing. Takes him outside the camp so no one can see. He uses his spit, sounds kind of gross. And it's the only time in the Gospels where there's this two-stage healing. What is going on here? Well, The author, Mark, has put these stories together for a reason. He is using this story, they're both obviously true stories, this story of the healing of the blind man, putting it right next to this conversation Jesus has with his disciples because there's a comparison going on. He wants us to compare them, what's going on with the blind man to what's going on with the disciples. And here's what it is, right? What happens with the blind man? He goes from no sight, some sight, I see people that look like trees walking around to full sight restored. What about the disciples? They go from 
no understanding. At the beginning of the Gospels, they got no idea who Jesus is. Now to some understanding. Peter says, you're the Messiah. He gets his identity right, but it's not really right. Goes from no understanding to some understanding. I see, you know, I see people, they look like trees walking around. It sounds like my wife in the morning without her contact lenses on, just not being able to see properly. Now, what's the point being made here? It's this. It's possible to see Jesus but not really see him, right? To see him, even claim his true identity but still not really understand what he's on about, to miss the real Jesus. We're going to finish up in a moment, but we just want to go through some application. So what? What does all this mean for the people of God today and for people considering faith? Here's the question for us. Can you see Jesus clearly? I reckon the temptation in life is often, just in so many things, to go for the easy answer. Don't you reckon? To go for the easy answer. I think in our culture today, I'm off script here, but in our culture today, there's just no room for nuance. Don't you reckon? You're either totally with me or you're against me. There's no room for good discussion. You can disagree with somebody, that's okay, and still love them. It's easy to go for the easy answers. It feels simple. It's easy to keep Jesus at a distance, I think. Have him as a good moral teacher, revolutionary, great example, but he hasn't left that option open to us. I'll let the great C.S. Lewis speak. For me, he does it much better. C.S. Lewis says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Okay, where to from here? I think this is the point where I urge you to consider Jesus' true identity and its meaning for your life, for our life. I invite you, if you have not yet, to take a step of faith and receive Christ as your saviour. See him for who he truly is. Receive him as Lord and saviour. Now, for those of us who've been Christians for a while, I think... I don't know, you might disagree with me. And if you do, feel free to write a connect card and uh, address it to pip at harborside.org. Um, for us, the temptation, I think, is to see him as saviour, but not as Lord. You know, we love this. We, who doesn't love the story of being rescued? I mean, that's what we're about to celebrate at Christmas. Jesus leaving heaven to come and get us, to seek and save the lost, to rescue us. It's an incredible story. Who doesn't love that story? If that doesn't stir you, what's going on? We love that. But this whole concept of Jesus being Lord, having a say in how we live our lives, that's harder. Or, I think, and it's related to this, we can try and tame Jesus a bit, you know, sort of declaw the Lion of Judah. It's 
avoid some of the uncomfortable things Jesus says. He says some uncomfortable things like you can't serve God and money. Or hell is a real place. Or you must care for the poor and the orphans and widows. Or you know how they're going to know that you're my disciples? It's how you love one another, not by what you believe necessarily. You see, in order for the blind man to see clearly, what did he need? He needed that second touch from Jesus, didn't he? The disciples, what did they need? We leave them in this point of declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, but what do they need for, to, to see who Jesus truly is? They need the continued touch of Jesus. And that's my prayer for us this morning that by God's spirit, he would reveal to us where we are, where we have preconceived ideas shrouding who the true Jesus is, where we're not letting him be who he truly is in our lives. What we need, actually, is God to expose. We talked about that a lot last week, to expose our hearts, our preconceptions, maybe besetting sin, and take it away so that we can truly see Jesus clearly. So I'm going to pray now. We're just going to spend 30 seconds just a bit more in reflection. I'm going to ask you just to bow your head, just to be still and be quiet. And we're just going to ask God to do his work in us this morning. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for bringing us here today. I ask, Lord, if there's anyone in this room this morning that has not accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, I urge that you would move them to make this decision, this earth-shatteringly important decision. Father, we we want to be here at Harvestside Church, a, a community where people of all walks of life and all stages of faith come together. It's a place that it's... It's safe to ask questions. It's safe to have some doubts. It's safe to not exactly know. It's safe to take a step of faith. And Lord, for those of us that have been Christians for a while, maybe a long while, I ask, Lord, that that you would uncover, maybe that's it, that you would do the work of uncovering this morning that you would take away our preconceived ideas, that you'd take away some religiosity from our hearts. You'd help us to connect with who you really are. Prepare us to hear maybe some difficult things. Help us, our lives to change. Help us to move toward action. We declare, Lord, that you are good. We declare that you have good for us. We thank you for all that you've given us in Jesus. We pray it in your son's precious, precious name. Amen.